I'm Laverne, and a very grateful Alanon. And I want to thank my husband for giving me the privilege of being here this afternoon. If it hadn't been for him, I would have never known this way of life. So I am very grateful and very thankful. I told him that one time when he had just come off of a three-week vacation and he was shaking. I didn't know whether he was shaking for my benefit or if there was, you know, something to this illness. And he looked at me like, you're grateful that I'm an alcoholic because you could have the privilege of this wonderful program. I'm sure that wasn't the time to tell him. But I am grateful that we do have this, this way of life. And this is what it is to me, a way of life. I would like to introduce to you now our uh, Al-Anon delegate for the state of Texas, Dorothy Thatcher, West Texas. <laughs> and our retiring delegate from the state of Texas, Abutis. And we're so fortunate to have with us today, AAs are quite familiar with the grapevine. The Al-Anons have a little magazine that is smaller but just as wonderful, and it's called The Form. It was one of the first things that I had when I came in. It means an awful lot to me. And at the end of every form, there's always something that's real good, a real good thought, and it's signed, Margaret. And we're so happy to have Margaret with us this afternoon. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. From the very first World Service Conference meeting when our Arbutus came up, and she said, I'm Arbutus from Texas, I thought, golly, someday I'm going to get down there. And all through that meeting, we had a marvelous time because when things would get sort of bogged down and, and stymied and people were just ready to say, well, I don't believe that or something, you know, you do get tired sitting eight hours in a smoky room. Our builders would come up with some wisecrack and everybody would be friendly and we'd start over again. And I thought if they're all like that in Texas, I want to go down and meet a slew of them. And so here I am, and I have met a slew of them. My name is Margaret Doherty, and I have been married 33 years to a man who says he was an alcoholic from his teens. When we became engaged, he drank, but I drank too, just as much as he did. And, but it didn't seem to register, because when my mother said, Margaret, aren't you a little concerned about Jack's drinking? I said, why, no. Why? And she said, I think he drinks too much. And I said, but everybody drinks too much. And I said, he can stop any time. And she said, how do you know? And I said, well, he told me he could. <laughs> and so that was proof positive. And so we got married. And he retired very prematurely. We went abroad. We were going to have a honeymoon abroad for a year, and he was going to do some writing. And so off we went. 
Well, I don't think I had been married four days before I found that his drinking and my drinking were worlds apart. And as time went on, it got worse. I could take it or leave it. He couldn't do either one of them. And it really got very, very bad. Then we had a daughter. And when she, well, to begin with, she was very slow in speaking, and I had her do about a dozen specialists to see if something was wrong with her vocal cords. And he looked at me, and he said, Oh, Mrs. Darty, don't be concerned. Any child who habitually hears two languages is bound to be slower. She makes two connections for every word. But when you speak to your own child in English, and she looks back and answers in French, and you're living in a foreign country, I'll tell you, it gives you chills and fevers. And I thought, we've got to get out of this place. We've got to get home. She's an American child. She ought to be brought up in America. So that when we had a chance through a friend to go out to Montana, way out in the wildest part of the western slope of the Rockies, to operate a horse and cattle and guest ranch, I read the letter and thought, oh no, that will never happen. It's, it's really too much the answer to prayer. But Jack sparked to it, and he'd been in the Army long enough so that he knew that he would like the life, knew that he could do it because we would have help. I began promoting it then, and I thought, this really is the answer to prayer. Here we were living in Paris when there were six bistros to every block. And there are a lot of blocks in the length and breadth of Paris. And I thought, I had spent four summers at this very ranch. And I thought, golly, I'll get him out there. It's 80 miles from town. There isn't a liquor store this side of Missoula. Drinking will no longer be a problem. And so I promoted it and promoted it. And within a month, I had us on a boat on our way home to America. And you know what good the geographical cure does. Of course, nothing deterred me. I thought of every cure there was. I guess Keeley was dead or I'd have had him in one of those. But <clears throat> the thing was that I was brought up that a rule of physics was that water seeks its own level. Well, I learned through hard experience on those western slopes of the Rockies that an alcoholic can seek alcohol to his own level and there's nothing that will stop him. So that the grand geographical cure didn't work. And then the army came and that really was rugged. I was so afraid that he would talk back to the commanding officer or that he would be involved in some horrible incident when he was an officer of the day. But I really nearly went frantic and I had absolutely no help from anything because I didn't even know well I had read Jack Alexander's article out in Montana and I had uh, read the thing and thought it over and I thought well these people sound like Jack but I don't see how 12 steps could do anything it's kind of a it might appeal to somebody else, but I don't think it would appeal to Jack. It's kind of a do-gooder program. 
but I did think that if I ever got where those people were, I would call them up because the article said you could. You'd find them in the telephone book and you could call them. So that uh, one time Jack had some army business, air corps business it was, over in Denver. And when he came back, he asked me to send his things to the cleaners. And when I was turning out his blouse, one of the pockets had a little slip of paper on it, and it said AA and a telephone number. And I thought, oh, Jiminy, that's that thing I read about. And if I get to Denver, I'm going to call them. Well, of course, I got to Denver, but I lost my courage. I didn't call them. And probably it's just as well, because they couldn't have done much over the telephone and couldn't have done much with me. But finally, the war ended, and Jack was uh, discharged down in New Jersey, and he dropped into the New York office of his old agency. And they said, when are you coming back to work? And he called me, and he said, how would you like to live in New York? And, of course, my instinctive thing, which I did not say, was I would hate it. Because I've always thought, ever since Montana, that any place that was bigger than three houses was a slum. And here I was from the center of the country, the straight Midwest of Chicago, dumped down with all those conventional, hidebound Easterners, and I knew that I was going to be well out of place. But I thought if that was where he wanted to work, that was where I should live. And so I said, that'll be fine. So I went out and got our furniture, and we came down to New York. We had a horrible time finding a place and finally ended up in Yonkers. And this drinking had progressed, as everybody knows it does, until I was really no longer a sane person. And I had utterly no judgment from being one of eight children, very controlled and quite poised, I became just a mass of uncontrolled nerves, just a horrible mess. And this particular morning was a Sunday morning, and I was on my way to church. And to show you how far I had gone from any normal thinking, it was 6.15 in the morning. The church was a maybe seven-minute walk from our home. And I was going to a 6.30 mass so that I would surely be home before the bars opened at 1 o'clock. And I just thought I could not leave him. I would have to stay there to see that he didn't go out and drink more. And so I got halfway and stopped on the sidewalk and I think that that was the real breaking point. And I stood there and I looked up, and it was a beautiful May morning. And I looked up and I said, God, you will have to help me. I can do it no longer alone. I wasn't willing to tell my family. I hadn't been willing. I had a few friends in Yonkers by that time. But I would not ever let anyone think that there was anything wrong in our family. I was thoroughly ashamed of it. I didn't understand that it was an illness, and it was just something shameful to be covered up. But the morning that I yelled at God, I went on to church, and 
It happened to be Pentecost Sunday, and they told of the descent of the Holy Spirit to strengthen and enlighten men. Well, I'd heard of the Holy Spirit since I'd been born, but I'd never paid a bit of attention. And I thought, that is what I need. If anybody needs strength, and if anybody needs enlightenment, I am that person. And on my way home, at the very same spot where I had reached my bottom, I heard, I could almost swear, unless I'm still crazy, I heard the words, A-A. And I suddenly put my head up and my shoulders back, and I thought, that's that thing I wrote about, uh, read about. That's the, those are the people who know about this queer drinking. I'm going to get in touch with them. So I went home. And by that time, it was about 7.30. The body was lying in state. <laughs> and, <laughs> Jack, <clears throat> Jack had the absolute king of all hangovers. And if I had had the sense of a goose, I had had two hangovers in my life. And I think that's why I never got to be an alcoholic. They bothered me so, and and I was so sick that I thought, well, I can't ever have one of these again. But, of course, that wasn't a deterrent. But all Jack wanted was a little peace and quiet. So I came storming in. And I began, very civilly and, and reasonably enough, as reasonable as I ever was at that time, And I said, Jack, you know, there's something very, very wrong about your drinking. There are people who know about this, and there are people who can help you. But he didn't need any help. He could stop drinking any time he wanted. And I said, well, then somebody has to make you want it enough, because we cannot go on. And, of course, it wasn't quite as friendly in five minutes. And... (laughs) It ended up with, do you remember Grant Wood's American Gothic, that awful woman with the face to slawn? Well, I looked at him and I said, it is A-A or else. (laughs) And I stormed out of the room. And believe me, I meant it. And of course, the poor thing, at the end of an hour he called and he said, Marg, call those people. Well, I called those people, and thank God I did call them. It was wrong for us. I have heard, this was all 17 or 18 years ago, when AA was very, very different, I think. People came into it a lot later then. They, they come in younger now before they've reached such low bottoms. And I think now uh, people don't do much unless the man himself wants it. And I think that's very logical. But at that time, all they needed was the encouragement of somebody being drunk, and they would come over and work on him. And so (laughs) they came, and it was marvelous. Jack did go to AA meetings, and after about the second or third week... (coughs) He asked me if I would mind coming with him. And I said, no, I'd love it. 
Well, I went, and I did love it. From the time I walked into that room and saw those other non-alcoholics, I thought, well, you aren't alone in this world. You aren't the only one that is struggling with this. And I was deeply impressed with the AA program. And certainly Dale Carnegie never sold AA or sold uh, Serenity more than I did AA. I would spend all my time talking about how wonderful it was that if everybody would practice that it would be the millennium, we would have heaven on earth. And of course, I'm sure we would. But that was labeled the AA program. And it was for AAs and of AAs and by AAs. And I was not an alcoholic. And I always felt a little as if I didn't quite belong there. They didn't mean to make me feel that way. But there wasn't ever a time when I could say anything. And when one of those men got up and said that uh, he was such a bad alcoholic that his wife should baby him, I would (laughs) practically see me rising to hit the ceiling, and I'd want to scream at him, I'd baby you if you were my husband. (laughs) But, of course, I didn't. And so we kept on. And Jack had a marvelous experience in AA for almost a year. And, of course, we went to every meeting every week. And then he changed jobs to the most marvelous one that he had had. And in a silly sort of way, he was afraid somebody would find that he had been an alcoholic or was an alcoholic and was in AA so that he stopped going to meetings and I don't think there's anybody in this room has any doubt about what happened sooner or later so that within a a very short time we were in turmoil again and I was far worse than I had been originally I had never uh, heard of a blackout I had never heard of somebody doing something in an alcoholic, whatever you'd call it, it is a blackout, and waking up the next day and found that he'd wrecked a car or that he'd been in a fight or that he had hurt somebody, that he'd even waked up in jail. And there were a lot of those stories all those years ago of people who did end up in jail. I had never even taken DTs seriously. I thought it was a thing they had in the funny papers when they wanted to explain some erratic conduct. So that I had very much more ammunition to worry about now that I knew what one of these alcoholic binges could lead to. And, of course, (coughs) that was before Al-Anon. And I knew nothing. And... finally an AA woman called me and said Margaret there's something new it's for families of alcoholics and she said you know yourself families need them need something they're the most nervous people said even after uh, their husbands have been in AA five years or six years they're still nervous they're in worse shape than the alcoholics are and I thought of the women that I met at the AA groups and I thoroughly agreed with her and I knew that I was in much worse shape than Jack was 
I really wasn't fit to be walking around. And <clears throat> she said that these people needed help. They were doing something, and she didn't know quite what, but that she thought I could help them. And I said, why, certainly, I'd be very glad to do what I could. And then she mentioned that Lois Wilson, Bill Wilson's wife, was doing this. Well, I had already agreed, but I think that I would have climbed mountains if she had said that first, because one of our friends had been doing a special project with Bill that winter, and he was at our house one night, and he said, you know, Bill <clears throat> is wonderful, but he said, I really think that little Lois has more on the ball. And I looked at him as if he were speaking Chinese. And I thought, if anybody in the world had more on the ball than the man that thought up the beginnings of the AA program, someday I wanted to meet her. So that for the lowest of all reasons, I went to the clearinghouse the very next day. <laughs> Pure curiosity to see what Lois Wilson looked like took me there. And for my nonsense, she wasn't there that day. <laughs> she didn't come in until the afternoon. She was over at a National Committee on Alcoholism luncheon. So that Ann Bingham explained to me that these were families who wrote in for help. And they had some, she said, what could I do? And I said, well, I can do anything, any office work that you want. But I'm, at that time, I was good. I'm a terrible typist now, but at that time, I was good. And I said, I can type like mad. And she said, oh, that's wonderful. We have all these letters, and it is so hard. They, these people need replies. And so I said, well, give me the letters. So I'd put a pile of them on this side, and I'd pick one up, and then I'd read the sample paragraphs that fitted their inquiries. And then I'd type it. And then I'd give it to Ann and say, is this all right? And she'd say, that's fine. And I'd put it there, and I'd pick up the next one. Well, if you've ever seen a mechanical man working, I was that mechanical man. I'd pick up my letter, I'd read it, I'd read my paragraphs, I'd give it to her, and I'd put it there. And I never said another word. And <clears throat> pretty soon, Lois and Dottie Langdon came in. And the four of us were really the nucleus. Irma Flynn used to work at the uh, AA uh, intergroup office, and she would come in the afternoon. And we had a large correspondence, and just the five of us to work at it. But we did do a terrific job because we were all terribly interested. This thing fascinated me. And for the first time, I caught a glimpse that maybe this program didn't, it did belong to AA, but we could borrow it. And we could make it work for ourselves, and it wouldn't hurt AA if we did it. So that I began trying to practice the steps. I was awful, because I was one of those horrible people that put every ounce of quite a bit of energy into keeping Jack from drinking. I had no idea that I was doing more harm than good. I had a parade of doctors 
he never I didn't put him in a hospital I suppose because I didn't know you could but <clears throat> I had a hypnotist and his wife come with soft lights and music and they had a thing it was every time I, I can't bear that Anison ad on TV that says pain 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 because that was more or less what this little hypnotist did and even then sober he made me nervous <laughs> but I poured out enough seagrams and four roses and golden wedding and whatnot to float the Constitution. I stole Jack's money so that he wouldn't get another drink and lied to his face about it. As a matter of fact, I told more lies than Hitler. The only difference between us was that Hitler varied his and mine were always the same. But... I had gone on with all of these things because I really didn't know any better. I had never been to an Al-Anon meeting. There wasn't an Al-Anon group. And <clears throat> finally, of course, there was an Al-Anon group 30 miles away, the one that uh, Ann and Lois went to, and they invited me to come. And I had planned to go, and we had made firm dates. And... I couldn't drive myself. I didn't drive down in New York. I used to in Montana, but I let my license lapse and didn't want to get another one. By that time, I was afraid of everything. And uh, so we had planned to go to an Al-Anon meeting. And I think, really, I was sitting in God's pocket that the various things happened which kept us from it. Because I had been going down to the clearinghouse for three months and a little bit more before I ever attended an Al-Anon meeting. And in those three months, I probably would have gone and have heard practically any story there was. But it never would have been the terrific experience that I had the first night I did get to one. And they were open meetings so that Jack could come with me, fortunately, and he thoroughly enjoyed them. And I went to this one, my first one, and there was a little girl who spoke, and it just sort of, I could sort of tell what she was aiming at because I had been answering these letters, but it didn't uh, make much impression and it didn't grip me. Then a black-haired, sooty-eyed Irish girl got up, the cutest thing you've ever seen, and she was so poised and she was so relaxed and she was having such fun. And she looked and she said, you know, I'm the fuss... Oh, well, I should tell you that before I tell you about her, the thing that had happened to me, which I found the most shattering, and that was that Jack used to go to Philadelphia every Wednesday morning on business. And that was the day that I picked up the laundry and got it ready for the man to take away. Well, he would do his business, which would take him perhaps till 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and the train back to New York didn't leave until 5. And, you know, out of sight, out of mind, he thought, well, nobody will ever know if I have a quick one in Philadelphia. 
so that by the time he would get home, anybody would know. And some way, in a queer, distorted, insane fashion, I connected changing the sheets on Jack's bed with his going on a binge. And I wouldn't do it. (laughs) I would leave them. And they were horrible sometimes. I wouldn't let my daughter in the room until I had a neat, clean spread. Why the spread didn't do it, I don't know, but it was just the sheets. And so I sometimes didn't change them for three weeks because I was so afraid he would start a binge. Well, this little black-eyed girl or blue-eyed girl got up and she said, you know, I'm the fussy kind of compulsive housekeeper that felt as if one spot on my curtains meant that I had to do a spring cleaning. And she said, believe me, I have learned to live with them a good battleship gray. Because every time I washed my curtains, my husband came home drunk. (laughs) Well, everybody there laughed. But I was like that child at the party. I was the child that fell. Believe me, I sat there as if I had been turned to stone. And I thought, it can't be. She's in her own mind. She is sane. Because, you see, I had been so sure that I had crossed the borderline. I knew that it was a superstition. But I was so hag-ridden by it. It was such a compulsion and such a really revolting thing besides that I had lived with this fear and this shame for so long that I was no longer normal. And here she was. She was standing up telling ten or a dozen people. And I thought then, this is magic. If she can do it, I can do it. And she went on to say that she finally decided her husband was a periodic. And so she would wait until he was drinking. And his interval was about seven weeks to two months. She would wait until the next time he was drinking and she would wash her curtains. (laughs) And he usually took four or five days to come out of it. So Monday when he was drinking, she washed her curtains. The next Monday when he was out of it and presumably was good for seven to eight weeks, she washed her curtains again. And she thought, I'll break this jinx and then the rest of my life I'll be free. (laughs) Believe me, That night, at about 10 o'clock, he called her from a town about three stations beyond where he should have got off and a place where he had utterly no business to be and he was drunk as he had ever been. (laughs) Now, I don't know what got her out of it, but that girl did something for me that nobody in my life ever can do again. She did release me from that hell I had been living in but I couldn't talk about it I still was bitterly ashamed I still couldn't even think of it comfortably so that in another three months or so I was invited to talk to a group over in New Jersey and I was very scared I didn't know what to say really 
I thought, what have you got to tell all those people? They all know more about it than you do. They've all been in it longer. And it's just stupid to go there. And then I thought, it isn't stupid. Think what that girl did for me. And if you can just gather your courage together and tell them, maybe there'll be one person there that it will help as it helped you when that little girl told hers. And so even when I got up to speak, I wasn't sure whether I would have the courage to tell such a shameful thing. But I did. I did tell it. And the meeting was barely over when a woman rushed up to me and she threw her arms around me and said, Oh, Margaret, thank God you came tonight. She said, I'm going home and roast a chicken for my, for my family tomorrow. And I looked at her and started to laugh, and she said, yes. She said, I'll boil it or fry it or frigazee it. I'll give them chicken salad or chicken sandwiches. I'll give them anything but roast chicken because Jim comes home drunk every time I do it. And you can believe it or not, three at that same meeting came up to me. Another woman had a gray tablecloth. And if she put that gray tablecloth on the table before her husband came in the door... He came in drunk. <laughs> Another woman would get up out of bed because she had variegated china. You know, all these, it just occurred to me this minute, sort of a color scheme, me and my gray sheets and the gray tablecloth. Well, not the chicken. <laughs> anyhow, this woman with her variegated china would get up out of bed to put the gray, the green cup on the green saucer and take the yellow cup from a blue saucer and put it on a yellow cup, or her husband would come home drunk. (laughs) So that I told my story of my awful sheets, and I began to feel a bit better. But I still was not working the steps. I still was trying to manage Jack's life. As a matter of fact, I called up one time. I got a little desperate. And we only met at the clearinghouse once a week so that, and I didn't see anybody in between times so that I didn't work at it as hard as I should or as we do nowadays in Al-Anon. I called up a doctor in Yonkers, and he was the busiest man. You'd have to wait a week or ten days, sometimes two weeks, for an appointment. But I told him it was an emergency, that I needed help immediately, and the poor thing saw me. And I looked at him and I said, you know, doctor, sometimes bones heal crookedly and have to be rebroken, don't they? And he said, yes. Why do you want? Uh, why would you ask? And I said, well, I want you to break Jack's leg for me. <laughs> <laughs> and believe me, I can see that it's funny now in a, in a distorted sort of way. But Dr. Tatera didn't think it was funny. I was just as serious as I have ever been in my life, and he knew it. And he he looked at me, and and I think he was perfectly appalled that I could be so far from normal. So that without Alan, and and I had improved by that time in (laughs) Alan. 
you know, we had moved from a house that had seven outside doors. And there was just this one. So that if Jack were drinking, or I thought he was going to drink, I would put the three Davenport cushions in front of the one entrance. And there I would spend the night so that he wouldn't be able to get out. And you know what good that did. I did keep him in maybe for one night, but how much after 8 o'clock the next morning when I'd be getting breakfast for our daughter do you think it took him to get out? But none of those things added up to me. And I kept going to Al-Anon and getting a little bit more, but I still was far from keeping my hands off. And I finally thought I had taken the first step. I knew that that was my stumbling block. I couldn't ever get beyond it. Admitted that I was powerless out over alcohol and that my life had become unmanageable. Well, believe me, I had no difficulty admitting my life had become unmanageable. Even though I was partway around the bend, I knew that I had turned a corner, that I was no longer normal. But... I still thought that I just hadn't yet been smart enough to think up the one thing that would stop Jack's drinking. Because after that initial slip that he had, he had years of difficulty with the program. And I may say he had years of difficulty with his life. I think I made the difficulty with the program by insisting on all of this excess help. I called the Yonkers group until I was ashamed, and they would chase him in and out of bars. Then I took to chasing him my own self. (laughs) And everything went on, and each time I would have a little minor victory. I think, now I've got that first step. Until one time, and believe me, this was when I had been in Al-Anon and consciously working it for three years and a bit we were having difficulty and I was on my way home from my job and I was on my way to a liquor store at the corner of 52nd and Lexington and just as I got to the corner the light changed and I had to wait and thank heaven I did have to wait because I was on my way to that liquor store because One girl, in talking to our group, said that one time she got good and sick of her husband drinking, and she had got three bottles of whiskey and had put them on the edge of the dresser where he would see them the first thing when he woke up. Well, he did wake up, and he saw those, and right like that, he leaped for the telephone. He said, give me AA, my God. My wife is trying to make me an alcoholic. (laughs) So that I was on that corner waiting for the light to change, not to get three bottles. If three bottles would do it, six would be better. (laughs) And that was what I was going for. I was going to have a real parade. And waiting for that light to change, I actually heard in my head, When are you ever going to take the first step? And suddenly I saw really what I was doing. And I thought, you're going to take it right now. 
you are going to take your hands off. This is Jack's problem. For years, you see, I had told him. I said, really, in a way, you're fortunate. You have got one problem to solve. And if you do solve it, when you die, you'll go whoosh to heaven. And I meant it. But think of the impudence of it. I told him that for years. And it was only after I had taken the first step myself that it occurred to my feeble brain that he had been given that problem of alcoholism, but I had been given the problem of living with it. And look at the mess I had made of adjusting to it. I had allowed myself to get completely out of kilter. I had allowed myself to get almost antisocial. I wouldn't accept an invitation. I frequently wouldn't answer our telephone. I wouldn't answer our door. It might be the fuller brush man for all I knew, but I wouldn't even uh, say, how do you do to him? I just had crawled into a shell and had built it around me higher and higher and thicker and thicker so that I almost had parted company with the human race. And (coughs) when I did take that first step, other things fell in to place. I think perhaps there are people who may get this program through a moral inventory. They may get it through the 12th step. For me, I can't work it five minutes without my feet firmly on that foundation of admitting that I am powerless over alcohol. Anytime I forget it for a minute, I am in trouble. So that for me, it is the very most important thing of our program. It's the thing to which I cling day after day and year after year. Now, of course, not very many people are quite as thick-headed about it as I. There was one girl in our group. She'd only been to a few meetings, maybe three And she came one night with a problem. She was supposed to meet her two sisters in St. Louis for a vacation. They hadn't been together in several years. This time was free for all of them, and it would be years before they would be free to meet again. And her problem was she had come home that night and had found her husband drinking, and should she go and leave him? Well... At that time, I had got over my great white silence, and I had figured that I talked too much in our group and that I should sit back and let some of the newer members express themselves. And so when Mary asked this question, I didn't say anything. I was doing some knitting, and I kept knitting. And she went around the group, and three or four people said what they thought about it and what they would do. And finally she looked at me and she said, Margaret, what do you think? And without any thought at all, I looked at her and I said, he's drinking now, isn't he? And she said, well, yes, he is. And we went on to something else. It wasn't until about six months later that Mary was leading a meeting and she chose to talk on the first step. And she said, some of you may remember the night that I was considering going to 
St. Louis to meet my sisters. And my husband had, I found he had begun drinking. And she said, I had almost made up my mind not to go, that my place was with him. And she said, then Margaret looked up from her knitting and said, well, he's drinking now, isn't he? And she said, I suddenly saw that I was powerless over alcohol and that that was what it was, that it was Clifford's problem. He would have to solve it. So she said, with that, the first step, she took the first step. She has never wavered. She has never had one bit of difficulty with it. She went out to St. Louis and she returned. And I think she, very, very shortly, it wasn't when she got back, it was within a week or two, she found that he had gone to AA and has had a very happy experience in it ever since. So that it isn't necessary to bat your head against a wall the way I did for so many years in order to get that first step. Everything I did, really, except with my daughter, I think was wrong. I pushed AA at Jack when he wasn't ready for it. Although, at that time, a lot of men in AA were pushed into it. I've heard a hundred of them and more say my wife became unmanageable, and so they had come. But for us, it was the wrong thing to do. It was the wrong thing for me to sit next to Jack at an AA meeting and, you know, (laughs) be sure he didn't miss the point. It was the wrong thing for me to think up all these pious things about him going straight to heaven if he solved his problem. I had so much worse problem. (laughs) I don't know why he never said it, except that I I do think that... uh, their burden of guilt is so great that they seldom turn and say, well, how about you? I don't know why they don't. And it would have been better, perhaps, if Jack had said that to me. I might have come to my senses sooner. I don't know. And it's not important. But the only thing is, with my daughter, I did do the things that I should have done. She never has been damaged by the alcoholism. She has never had a sense of insecurity and she is old enough now so that she really knows. She's married and has three children and she has said repeatedly that she has that it has never made the tiniest bit of difference and never did when her father was drinking. She just used to go in her room. She didn't like to be near him. But the minute he stopped drinking it was just as if the incident had never occurred. I think she was born knowing the first step. Because one time, uh, uh, Jack had, he's a sucker for little girls. And he always bent over backwards, but this time he was very sharp with her. And I said afterwards, I went in her room and I said, Margie, I'm sorry, Daddy didn't understand you or he wouldn't have spoken as he did. And she said, why, Mommy, don't... Why bother? He was drinking. And he wasn't drinking in the house, but she knew it. And I said, what difference does that make? And she said, well, when he drinks, he's not my father. Well, I thought that was a little informal. (laughs) So I said, Margie, you must realize, no matter what your father does, 
or what I do. We are your parents. And she said, oh, no, 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 not with drinking. He's not himself. And if he's not himself, he's not my father. And I said, well, then, what is it when he's not drinking? She said, oh, then he is my father. Well, that worried me a long time because I thought, gee, sometimes she's going to turn this off and she won't be able to turn it back on again. (laughs) But I think it was an instinctive recognition that he was not her father. He was not himself. Therefore, he wasn't her father. And it didn't bother her. They have had the most marvelous relationship of any daughter and, and father I have ever known. She simply adores him. And it has never interfered at all. From the minute that I went to AA, I had always put on the old routine. Daddy has a headache. You'll have to be quiet. Daddy is sick. Well, of course he was, but I didn't believe it. <laughs> until after AA but then it did make sense there had to be some reason for a thing as violent as this as compulsive as this so that when I learned anything at all about AA I came home and explained it to her and she accepted it wholeheartedly she never had a question once I made clear what the AA thinking was on any given point. And I think any child will do that if you accept it yourself. I think that it's only when you have reservations of your own that the children get in trouble. So that Margie, well, she really lived family group once she was in college when I found out about family group. But in my letters, I would write to her and tell her what I had learned at family group and what I had learned at the clearinghouse. And so in her vacation, she would say, there were no Alateine groups then, she would say, couldn't I come to visit? And she came so much that they made her a member of the group. And she used to talk and She spoke for us at one of our big spring rallies. She really learned Al-Anon and learned to live it. So much so that her senior year at college, she decided that her best friend was going to be head of the waitresses in the sorority house. And so she told Nancy that she would like to waitress. And she would get half her board bill or something. I don't know. But anyhow, a substantial amount of money. And I said, well, that's fine if you want to do it, but you don't have to. We can manage to send you. She said, no, I want to do it, and Nancy is the head one. Well, she came home at Thanksgiving, and I thought she was a bit subdued, but I I knew something was wrong, but there wasn't time to find out what it was. But when she came home at Christmas time, I knew very definitely that there was something radically wrong. And I said, Margie, what is it? And she said, oh, Mommy, she said, it's that cook in our house. And I said, what cook? And she said, oh, she doesn't like me. She said, I've never done anything to her, but she doesn't like me. And she makes it awfully hard for me. She said, if I put a tray down here to get something, I turn around and I can't find my tray. And 
she takes things off it, and every time she can do something that's upsetting to me, she does it. Well, I got furious. And I said, well, Margie, you go back and you tell Nancy that you're not going to waitress. This is your senior year, and you should have a good time. Don't let anything spoil it, because after you're out of college, you'll have responsibilities and just have this a golden time. And she said, well, I couldn't do that. You've taught me yourself. You can't run away from a job. And I thought then, why did I teach her so strongly? <laughs> and she said, besides that, Mommy, it's, she said, it's, it'll be all right. It's going to get better. It's a little better now. She said, you see, I'm family grouping her. <laughs> and so in June, we went up there to that sorority house and the juniors were waiting on the seniors then so that when the luncheon was over Margie said come on mommy I want you to come out and meet Florence and she said I want to say goodbye to her that was the nasty cook and I went out there thinking well if I could put my foot out and trip her (laughs) I'd be glad but I got out there and it was the cook that cried to say goodbye to Margie because Margie had family grouped her so well. (laughs) This program really will work for anybody that is willing to work it. And as we say in Al-Anon, our obligation is always forward. There is nothing I ever could do, I don't believe, that would repay that little girl that spoke the night I heard her about her curtains. But I also believe that anybody that we have helped is paying our debt with us. I think Mary, who took the first step with five words, is helping me pay my debt to Al-Anon. I think that that woman who is roasting chickens... Less than a month ago in Maryland, I was telling about my sheets. I have to tell about them. They're the only thing that happened to me. And I told about them. With her, she couldn't cook sauerkraut on Saturday night. She could cook it on Monday, but not on Saturday. And she was even a little worse than I, because she had infected her children with this fear. They had come in a little while before, and they said, Oh, Mother... You're not cooking sauerkraut Saturday night, are you? You know what will happen. So I, she was going to wait till the next Saturday night, and that was going to be hers. I think that anybody that I ever have helped one tiny bit is helping me pay my debt. I won't live long enough, but they'll help other people. And in the end, that obligation will be paid. I've even got an AA working for me. I went up to Canada a few years ago, and I was simply scared to death. I thought, oh, golly, anybody in the United States, I don't care where they are, they just would figure I'm a fellow American, and if I made an awful boner, they'd forgive it. But if I go up there and make a mistake, it won't be for the gaiety of nations so that I was quite scared and 
in a way, I had thought when I was done that I had done a fairly good job. At least I had said the things I had planned to say, and I thought I had made the points that I had planned to make. And I was feeling pretty good. And then a hurricane came along, and we were all weathered in on the island. So that the next day, I didn't have any badge on. I didn't have anything. And this AA man came up to me, and he put his hand out, and he said, Margaret, I want to thank you for that talk yesterday. And I said, well, how extremely nice of you. And he said, you know, I haven't cried in 30 years. And he said, when you were talking yesterday, I sat with tears streaming down my face. And I said, my gosh, I didn't know I was that bad. (laughs) And he looked and he said, no. He said, it was good for me. He said, in all those 30 years, and apparently he was one that had had continued trouble. He said, it never had crossed his mind that his drinking would affect another person. And he said, it was only when you were talking that I realized that it did. And he said, the next time temptation comes, I think it will be different. So that I've got him paying my debt. And I think that there is no feeling in the world, I think that if we help one person, there are a lot of people that will come to a meeting of ten or a dozen people and say, if anything I have said here tonight helps one person, it will be worth it. Well, I don't think that's realistic. I don't think that it's working the law of averages. I think if one thing one of us says perhaps once in our lives really helps another person, it will be worth it. And it's only thanks to Al-Anon that I am here today in a place where I have wanted to be for years and among people that I have wanted to meet. I have loved the things you have sent from Texas to the forum. I have admired them. And I think the quality of a lot of your Al-Anon, at least the Al-Anon that reaches me, is fine. I love your beautiful spirit that you have. It's the same thing that made me so happy in Montana. I think that Texas and the West have sort of a freedom which has always appealed to me. And it is only with Al-Anon's help that I am here today counting my blessings instead of counting my fingers in some horrible institution. Thank you for listening. Wasn't that wonderful? We do thank you, Margaret, very much. Do you owe a debt? Do you want to help? We are having an assembly meeting of the Alanons in the hospitality room right in front of us. We want to encourage all Alanons, especially the men and the uh, women from out of state, to come and be with us in our assembly meeting. Is there anything else? All right. Thank you.